Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 54, Okinawa, the last great battle of the Second World War. More great unpublished history. Or on this occasion, published history. The USS El Dorado slowed as it approached the west coast of Okinawa in the pre-dawn darkness. Ahead could be seen the muzzle flashes of naval guns, arcing trajectories of red-hot projectiles, the glow of fires on a distant blur of shoreline. The bow doors opened, and one by one the Amtraks splashed into the water as Good luck, Marines! sounded on the ship's loudspeaker. Looney was half expecting his Amtrak to go directly under, but it stayed afloat and moved slowly towards land. The American soldiers emerged from the thousand-odd landing craft, thrusting onto the shore. It was as if the sea itself were advancing with a great roar. He looked to his right and saw his assistant driver, Khan, frantically jerking at the hatch lever. We're on fire, yelled Khan, and the hatch is jammed. Hello again, and another warm World War II welcome to you. I'm Paul Cheel, son of World War II veteran Bill Cheel. The Fighting Through podcast features cracking first-hand memoirs and memories of war veterans, and much more. Today we're moving away from the European theatre of war to the Pacific, an area I've been looking to cover for some time, and I've prepared a passage from a new military history book. Before that, I'd just like to repeat my best wishes to anyone affected by the coronavirus. It's likely we all know someone who's been affected, and I certainly know people who've been impacted to varying degrees. So I hope you and your friends and family are keeping as safe as you can be, and will continue to be so. I was recently listening to the History Extra podcast, where they were interviewing historian Saul David about his new book, and I enjoyed the interview so much, I thought I'd contact Saul to see if I could nick one of his chapters for the Fighting Through podcast, and he kindly agreed. But before I crack on, I want to mention the subject of donations to the show. From now on and forevermore, I've decided to give any future donations I receive directly to worthy causes. So pound for pound, dollar for dollar, it'll go to charity. And for now, I've chosen the Salvation Army, basically because it was always one of Dad's favourite charities, and that was because they were always helping the troops during the war. And today, they continue to help those who need food, safe shelter, and much more. Here's just one example taken from Dad's recollection of returning to England from Dunkirk in 1940, after getting on board the Lady of Man at the East Mall at Dunkirk. I remember that during the journey to England, most of us had snatches of sleep by just supporting each other. We were so exhausted by lack of sleep that nothing could keep us awake. Early morning, after it had become light, somebody shouted, Hey, look across there! We saw the white cliffs of Dover, and it was a beautiful sight. In a little while, the ship slowed down and soon edged its way to the dockside at Folkestone. There was a tremendous welcome from everybody awaiting our arrival. Those good Samaritans of the Salvation Army, 
and of the women's voluntary service made us most welcome and plied us with sandwiches and mugs of good strong tea and before we had time to gather our wits we were boarding trains. It was unbelievable that we'd escaped from Dunkirk. So many good soldiers, the fighting rear guard in particular, would have to surrender and spend the remainder of the war in prison. So, if you enjoy the show, I'm so pleased, and that's really all I could ask for. But if you feel inclined to offer a little monetary support, then either carry on donating through Patreon or PayPal, or, just as good, donate a few dollars directly to any cause you think is worthy. And if you have time, drop me a line to let me know. The Sally Army is easy to Google, and right now they have a page set up to take donations to help with the coronavirus. And I want to introduce you to a new book from award-winning historian Saul David. Welshman Saul is a military historian and broadcaster. His multi-award-winning history books include The Indian Mutiny, Zulu and Operation Thunderbolt about the raid on Entebbe Airport. Saul is well known for appearing in various documentaries on British television. He's also written a number of acclaimed fictional novels and he's Professor of Military History at the University of Buckingham in England. And this is the blurb from the book cover. Crucible of Hell is an action-packed and powerful new narrative of the Battle of Okinawa, the last great clash of the Second World War, and one that had profound consequences for the modern world. For 83 blood-soaked days, the fighting on the Japanese island of Okinawa plums depths of savagery as bad as anything seen on the Eastern Front. When it was over, almost a quarter of a million people had lost their lives, making it by far the bloodiest US battle of the Pacific. In Okinawa, the death toll included thousands of civilians lost to mass suicide, convinced by Japanese propaganda that they would otherwise be raped and murdered by the enemy. On the US side, David argues that the horror of the battle ultimately determined President Truman's choice to use atomic bombs in August 1945. Using graphic eyewitness accounts and declassified documents from archives in three continents, Saul David illuminates a shocking chapter of history that's too often missing from Western-centric narratives of the Second World War. So here we go with a prologue from the book. Prologue. Love Day. The USS El Dorado slowed as it approached the west coast of Okinawa in the pre-dawn darkness. Ahead, noted a US Marine Corps colonel, could be seen the muzzle flashes of naval guns, arcing trajectories of red-hot projectiles, the glow of fires on a distant blur of shoreline. Above the hum of our ship's circulating blowers could be faintly heard the roll and reverberation of man-made thunder as our supporting battleships, cruisers, destroyers and rocket gunboats increased the tempo of their shore bombardment. Designed as a floating command post, the El Dorado was packed with advanced communications equipment that left space for only two 5-inch anti-aircraft guns. Yet she contained a highly valuable human cargo, Vice Admiral Richmond K. Kelly Turner, USN, 
the straight-talking 60-year-old commander of the huge amphibious armada of 1,300 ships and 183,000 combat troops that was converging on Okinawa, the most southerly of Japan's 47 prefectures, and Ground Force Commander Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner, Jr., 58, the snowy-haired son of the famous Confederate General. It was 1st of April 1945, or Love Day, the codename for the assault, and an auspicious date for Buckner, as it was, he noted in his diary, Easter Sunday, my father's birthday, and the day of my first battle. He added, I hope I shall be able to look back upon it with the same degree of enthusiasm with which I anticipate it. Eager for the fray, Buckner had risen from his cramped quarters at 4.30am and after a quick breakfast of hot cakes, joined Admiral Turner on the bridge, where at 5.30am precisely, they observed through binoculars the opening of the pre-landing bombardment of the target beaches at Hagushi, a third of the way up the 70-mile Long Island. By the fire support force of 10 battleships, 9 cruisers, 23 destroyers and 177 gunboats. Over the next three hours, these vessels fired 44,800 rounds of 5-inch or larger shells, 33,000 rockets and 22,500 mortar shells, the heaviest concentration of naval gunfire ever to support a landing of troops. Shortly before 6am, as the gunfire continued... The day dawned, bright and clear, with excellent visibility of up to 10 miles, and only a few scattered patches of mist. A moderate breeze rippled the calm sea, and there was no surf on the target beaches. The weather, as anticipated, was perfect for an invasion. The golden sunrise, wrote a delighted Buckner, was not for Japan. At 7.45am the bombardment lifted long enough for carrier planes to strafe the beaches with bombs and napalm. Smoke and dust rose up from the shore, thousands of feet high, recorded the celebrated war correspondent Ernie Pyle as he watched the spectacle from the command ship of the 5th Marines, until finally the land was completely veiled. Bombs and strafing machine guns and roaring engines mingled with the crash of naval bombardment and seemed to drown out all existence. The ghastly concussion set up vibrations in the air, a sort of flutter, which pained and pounded the ears as though with invisible drumsticks. During all this time, the waves of assault craft were forming up behind us. At 8.20am... Ten minutes before H-hour, pennants were hauled down from the control craft and the first wave of amphibious tanks, covering an almost unbroken eight-mile line, began to move towards the shore, a distance of 4,000 yards at a speed of four knots. They were preceded by gunboats firing enough rockets, mortars and 40mm guns to saturate each pre-arranged 100-yard target square for up to 1,000 yards inland, with at least 25 rounds. The crescendo of the bombardment, noted Buckner on the El Dorado, culminating in the rocket discharge, was a magnificent spectacle. Following a minute behind the tanks was the first wave of assault troops in amphibian tracked vehicles, or Amtraks. 
likened by Ernie Pyle to big trucks on tractor treads, built cup-like, that propel them through the water, and the moment it touches bottom, it crawls along like a tractor. More followed at ten-minute intervals, with Wave 6 scheduled to leave before Wave 1 hit the beach. Pyle watched them go, with a miserable and awful weight on his heart. There's nothing whatever romantic, he reported, in knowing that an hour from now you might be dead. The advanced elements of four infantry divisions, a total of 12,000 men, were now heading for the shore, fearful of what awaited them. The most experienced was the 1st Marine Division, which in August 42 had become the first US infantry formation to see action when it invaded Japanese-held Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. That bloody campaign had lasted five long months before Japanese resistance was finally broken by the Marines. In 1944, they saw more tough fighting at Cape Gloucester and Peleliu, particularly the latter, where the fanatical Japanese defence had cost the division almost 6,500 casualties. The canal veterans had since rotated home, replaced by 8,000 raw recruits, but many of the rest remembered the storm of fire that had met them on the beaches of Peleliu, and, quite understandably, feared a repeat. Among them was 29-year-old First Lieutenant Bill Looney, a graduate in economics from Chicago's Roman Catholic Loyola University, who'd fought and only narrowly survived the last two campaigns as a platoon commander with Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, the 5th Marines. Now second in command as the company XO, or executive officer, he and his men had departed their base camp in the Russell Islands a fortnight earlier, aboard a flat-bottomed landing ship tank, LST, that had bunks for 217 men, expecting their target to be the island of Formosa. But after a six-day stop at Ulithi Atoll in the Western Caroline Islands, where they were met by the awesome, frightening sight of a totally gutted and listing aircraft carrier, the USS Franklin, which had been bombed by a single Japanese aircraft on 19th of March, they finally learned the truth en route to Okinawa. Early that morning, after a great breakfast of steak and eggs, they'd watched a battleship shoot down a Japanese kamikaze plane after every other ship in the harbour had tried and failed. It was as though the battleship had waited to see if the amateurs could handle it. The excitement over, Looney and his men were ordered into the Amtraks that were crammed into the LST's hold, where the stench of gasoline and the noise of the engines was almost overpowering. Finally, the bow doors opened, and one by one the Amtraks splashed into the water as, Good luck, Marines! sounded on the ship's loudspeaker. Looney was half expecting his Amtrak to go directly under, but it stayed afloat and moved slowly towards land. It was, he remembered, a nervous and quiet group, crammed into his Amtrak, all with the same questions and anxieties going through their minds. Are they waiting for us at the shore? How will we get up those sand dunes? Will it be as bad as Peleliu? Will I make it again? Similar thoughts were occurring to Corporal Jim Johnston, a high school valedictorian who in 1942 had quit the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to join the Marines, because he thought it was the honourable thing to do. 
Though only 22, Johnston was acting commander of a section of machine gunners in Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, the 5th Marines, and felt keenly the weight of responsibility on his shoulders to get his men through the campaign safely. Everyone who'd been in front of me in my unit was dead or gone, he noted. There was no one to lean on for help. Wherever I looked, someone was looking back at me. Their briefing on what to expect had left Johnston extremely pessimistic. Protecting most of the shoreline his company was assaulting was a high sea wall, save for a gap of 40 yards, with flat land beyond that, which was covered by machine gun emplacements. This is our objective, he wrote. We must try to secure the flat land so the tanks and supplies can be landed there. All the defences the enemy can muster... Artillery, mortars and machine guns will concentrate the fire on that strategic 40 yards. How in the world can a man live through such a place? So brutally frank had his officers been that everyone expected Easy Company to be literally destroyed. Up ahead, the gunboats turned aside as they reached the shallow coral reef that fringes Okinawa's western beaches, allowing the amphibious tanks and tracked vehicles to pass through them and proceed unescorted over the reef, the tanks firing their 75mm howitzers at any pillboxes and strong points they could identify. As the tanks neared the shore, the naval bombardment lifted to targets further inland, obscuring the ridges with smoke, blinding the Jap observation posts. While scores of carrier planes swooped low over the landing beaches to saturate them with machine gun fire. The amphibious tanks landed first, followed soon after by the tracked vehicles. As they covered the last few yards to the shore, Johnston remembered the sight of dead marines in the water and on the beach at Peleliu, and wondered what we would look like to the waves that would come behind us. To Looney, however, the absence of hostile fire and no burning Amtraks was a very good sign. Carrying long, collapsible ladders to scale the steep sand dunes, they piled out of the Amtrak and headed for the dunes. Still no action, he recorded. It's a walk-on. How great! Johnston approached a pillbox on Yellow One Beach, anticipating the impact of bullets ripping into my body, but there was no fire. The pillbox was empty. So he and his men moved inland, and within an hour the beachhead was several hundred yards deep and growing by the minute. They felt jubilant, absolutely overjoyed, as if they'd been granted a pardon from the death sentence. But for many, it was only a reprieve. Ernie Pyle was still on the 5th Marines command ship when word came back by radio that waves 1 and 2 were ashore without much opposition and there were no mines on the beaches. Peering through binoculars, he could see tanks moving across the fields and the men of the second wave walking inland, standing upright. There was the odd splash in the water near the beach from desultory small arms and mortar fire, but no sign of any real fire coming from the shore. It was indicative rather than definitive, yet he felt the weight of dread begin to lift. I found myself talking more easily with the sailors, he wrote, and somehow the feeling gradually took hold that we were to be spared. From the deck of the El Dorado, it was difficult to see exactly what was happening on the beaches, noted the marine colonel, 
but to our amazement there appeared to be little resistance. Our troops reported back that they were crossing the thin strips of coral sand, standing up. For reasons of their own, the Japanese had elected not to defend the beaches. He added, wave after wave of our landing craft hit the beaches, unloaded and pulled away to their mother ship for subsequent loads. Our troops, army and marine, were carried forward by sheer momentum to the high ground of the ventral ridge of the island, where they paused to consolidate and reassess the situation. Behind them, the tremendous build-up and congestion on the beaches continued, unhampered by enemy action. It had not been this easy on Peleliu or Iwo Jima. Perhaps the only US serviceman to feel somewhat concerned about the lack of opposition on Okinawa that morning was Lieutenant General Buckner. His Marine Deputy Chief of Staff Brigadier General Oliver P. Smith put this down to Buckner's bad experience at Kiskar in the Aleutians in August 1943 when army troops had landed and to their embarrassment found no Japanese. Buckner, according to Smith, did not want to be involved in another Kiska. Certainly Buckner was eager to fight, a pugnacity heightened by his lack of combat experience and the fact that in the months leading up to the campaign he'd been fed a steady diet of Japanese horror stories that included photographs of US soldiers who'd been butchered and eaten by Japs. Intelligence reports had estimated at least 65,000 Japanese defenders on Okinawa, so where were they? Opposition was light, Buckner wrote to his wife that evening. The Japs evidently expected us to land elsewhere in this island. I consider the day highly successful. We have nearly 60,000 troops ashore and more will land tomorrow. Buckner was convinced that the simultaneous fainted landing by the 2nd Marine Division on the southeast coast of Okinawa had fooled the Japanese into concentrating their troops in the wrong place. That was far from the case. Coolly watching the landings through binoculars from an observation platform in Shuri Castle, 12 miles to the south, stood the Japanese commander, Lieutenant General Mitsuru Ushijima, and his senior officers. Tall and heavy-set, with ruddy cheeks and benign countenance, the 57-year-old Ushijima had replaced the ailing General Watanabe as commander of the 32nd Army on Okinawa the previous August. He had some field experience as a brigade and divisional commander in China and Burma, but since 1941 had occupied administrative posts in Japan, first as commandant of the Army's Non-Commissioned Officers Academy, and then the more prestigious Imperial Japanese Army Academy. Perhaps not surprisingly, he was less hands-on than the fire-eating Watanabe, preferring to leave all operational details to his subordinates, while taking overall responsibility. In this respect, noted a subordinate, he was faithful to long-standing Japanese military tradition, going back to the great Takamori Saigo, one of the leaders of the Meiji Restoration of 1868. The short, stout officer standing nearest to Ushijima on the viewing platform, legs set defiantly apart, was his right-hand man and chief of staff, Major General Isamo Cho, 
an ultra-nationalist who'd been active in the 1930s in the young officer's military clique that was pushing for Japan's territorial expansion. Implicated in the massacre of at least 200,000 Chinese civilians and prisoners of war at Nanjing in the winter of 1937-38, and briefly arrested for his part in a coup d'etat against the civilian government, the 50-year-old Cho was a ruthless and aggressive military strategist who thought attack the best form of defence. If it had been his decision, the Japanese on Okinawa would have fought the invading Americans on the beaches. Instead, Ushijima took the advice of his talented operations chief, Colonel Hiromichi Yahara, 42, who was convinced the only way to defend Okinawa, given the inevitable imbalance in troop numbers and firepower, was to leave the beaches uncontested and instead concentrate Japanese strength in the south of the island. The plans recently put forward by Imperial General Headquarters, IGHQ, in Tokyo decreed that the battle for Okinawa would be won on the sea and in the air and that the troops on the island would merely be needed to mop up enemy remnants after they landed. Yahara knew this was nonsense and planned accordingly. Born to a modest family of farmers in the sparsely populated southwest of Honshu Island, the bespectacled Yahara had used brains and determination to advance his army career, passing out first from the War College. He'd served as a regimental officer, worked undercover in Southeast Asia, and more recently taught at the Imperial Japanese Army Academy in Tokyo under Ushijima. But it was his two years as an exchange officer in the United States, including six months with the 8th Infantry, that would serve him best on Okinawa, as they gave him an insight into the American military mind. Arriving in March 1944, Yahara considered Okinawa an obvious future target for US forces as they advanced closer to Japan's home islands, 400 miles to the north, and argued for a significant troop build-up. I felt it was crucial, he recalled, that we select those islands where we could expect the enemy to attack, place decisive troop strength there, and make adequate combat preparations while we still had the chance. He eventually got his way, and various formations were rushed to Okinawa until by the late summer of 44 the garrison had swelled to 105,000 men, backed by a further 20,000 half-trained Okinawan botai, home guard. At this point, Yahara's strategy was to move in the direction of any enemy landings, launch an offensive and destroy the enemy near the coast. But when IGHQ decided in November 44 to move the 32nd Army's best formation, the 25,000-strong 9th Division, to the Philippines via Formosa, Yahara changed tack. Now, with, he believed, too few troops to prevent a major landing, he concentrated the vast bulk of his forces in the southern third of the island, behind several heavily fortified lines north of army headquarters at Shuri Castle. Well protected in tunnels and caves, they could withstand any amount of enemy bombs and gunfire, or as Yahara put it, 
against steel, the product of American industry, we'd pit our earthen fortifications, the product of the sweat of our troops and the Okinawan people. The change was controversial as it ran counter to the Imperial Japanese Army's operational doctrine of seeking out a decisive battle rather than a war of attrition. But Ushijima gave his approval, and for the next five months, soldiers and civilians toiled night and day to prepare a defensive system across the narrow waste of southern Okinawa, where, forward of Ushijima's HQ on Mount Shuri, several jagged lines of ridges and rocky escarpments were turned into formidable nests of interlocking pillboxes and firing positions. All were connected by a network of caves and passageways inside the hills that allowed the defenders to move safely to the point of attack. With their defensive preparations complete, Ushijima and his officers were full of confidence as they watched the enemy's frantic deployment on the Hagushi beaches on 1st of April. Some jokes, a few lit cigarettes. All were tense with the warrior's inner excitement at the thrill of preparing to cross swords with a mighty enemy. Yahara marvelled at the sheer scale of the enemy bombardment as smoke and debris from the explosions rose into the sky. The enemy planes looked to him like hundreds of oversized beans as they emerged from the smoke to carry out their bombing operations. Then finally American soldiers emerged from the thousand-odd landing craft thrusting onto the shore. He wrote later, It's as if the sea itself were advancing with a great roar. He chuckled as he tried to put himself into the minds of the enemy commander and his staff. Advancing with such ease, wrote Yakahara, they must be thinking gleefully that they've passed through a breach in the Japanese defences. They'll be wrong. It's amusing to watch the American army so desperately intent in its attack on an almost undefended coast, like a blind man who's lost his cane, groping on hands and knees to cross a ditch. Yet at the same time, Yahara felt a gnawing sense of unease. The IGHQ plan was for the Air Force to play the lead role in warding off the enemy attack. It had been publicly stated that the best opportunity to destroy the enemy would be while he was still in his ships before the troops had a chance to land. For the last week, Japanese aircraft had attacked the enemy fleet under cover of darkness, by moonlight and at dawn. So why now, asked Yahara, with enemy landing craft swarming around the Hagushi beaches, do they not overcome all obstacles, take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime chance and make an all-out concerted attack? In fact, according to the diary of Vice Admiral Matomi Yogaki, the man tasked with the air defence of Okinawa, a full-scale attack on the approaching US 5th Fleet was ordered on 31st of March, but only a few kamikaze got through the American anti-aircraft and fighter screen the following day. One flew into the superstructure of the battleship USS West Virginia, and its bomb penetrated to the second deck. Fortunately, it was a dud, or the casualties of four dead and 23 wounded would have been much heavier. Other kamikazes struck a transport, USS Hinsdale, and two LSTs carrying men of the 2nd Marine Division as they fanned a landing off the southeast coast of Okinawa. 
Second Lieutenant Arthur L. Grisham, 21, from San Marcos, Texas, was eating breakfast in the officer's wardroom of LST-724 when he heard the sound of a plane and the ship's anti-aircraft gunners opening fire. Told to stay put and not get in the way, he continued with his meal. Suddenly, recalled Grisham, the ship absorbed a rattling crash, but there was no explosion. It was at midship on the port side, and we rushed to the outside passageway. There sat part of a Jap airplane engine, complete with body parts from the pilot. Our ship's gunners had shot him down before he could do serious damage to his target. The other two vessels were not so lucky. Looking back, Grisham could see LST-884 and the USS Hinsdale burning. As both vessels contained men from the same two marine units on LST-724, Grisham and his colleagues lobbied for slowing, or stopping, to assist our buddies. But the ship's captain refused, and they watched helplessly as survivors jumped overboard to avoid the flames. Their rescue would take many hours, and in total more lives were lost in these attacks, 41, than in the landings proper. Who said it was safer, commented Grisham, to be in reserve. The amphibious operation to capture Okinawa, codenamed Iceberg, was the largest of the Pacific War and the greatest air-land-sea battle in history. Admittedly fewer troops, 60,000, were landed on L-Day than had, for example, been put ashore on D-Day in Sicily in 1943, 180,000, and Normandy in 1944, 100,000. But the overall scale of Iceberg was arguably greater than both because of the number of naval assets involved and the distances they had to cover. This is, wrote one awestruck participant, the largest open seas armada in history. Seven divisions and the whole Pacific fleet, over 1,400 ships and half a million men. Think about this. All those ships and men have to arrive together at the right time and place, thousands of miles from the USA. Remarkable logistics. The seven divisions all come from different places and are all on ships. An awesome sight. Then there were the warships. Aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers and lots of destroyers. There were also some 40 submarines that had been in the operation and had transported the underwater personnel who'd worked on the barriers at the beaches. I'm sure the public did not realise the size of the Okinawa operation. In some ways it was bigger than D-Day. Either way, it was an astonishing logistical feat. For the assault echelon alone, more than 183,000 troops and 747,000 tonnes of cargo were loaded onto 430 assault transports and landing ships at 11 different ports from Seattle to Leyte in the Philippines. The closest Pacific base to Okinawa was at Ulithi, five days sailing at 10 knots. Yet the bulk of the resupply would come from the west coast of the United States, a distance of 6,250 nautical miles, or 26 days sailing. Most of the 540,000 Allied servicemen, Navy, Air and Army, who'd fought in the campaign were American. They included the naval personnel of Admiral Raymond A. Spruance's US 5th Fleet, 
the most powerful in history, with more than 20 fast aircraft carriers, 10 battleships and 1,200 aircraft. Yet a small but significant portion of the 5th Fleet's sea and air assets were British and Commonwealth in the form of Task Force 57, otherwise known as the British Pacific Fleet, which comprised two battleships, four fleet carriers, five cruisers, one from New Zealand, 11 destroyers, two from Australia, and 220 aircraft. It was the Royal Navy's most formidable strike force of the war. The campaign would last for 83 blood-soaked days as the fighting plumbed depths of savagery that was as bad as anything perpetrated by the Germans and Russians on the Eastern Front. It's a brutal, heart-rending story, made a little more bearable by the many instances of extraordinary heroism and self-sacrifice on both sides, and one best told from multiple perspectives, from the cramped cockpit of a kamikaze plane the claustrophobic gun turret of a warship under attack, and a half-submerged foxhole amidst the squalor and battle detritus on Sugarloaf Hill. The narrative shifts from the lofty perch of generals and presidents to the more humble experience of ordinary servicemen, their families, and the Okinawan civilians who were caught so tragically between the warring parties. But first, we must go back to the beginning to the 26th of July, 1944, when the US President met his senior Pacific commanders in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, to decide on the best strategy to defeat Japan. That was taken from Sol David's new book, Crucible of Hell. I'd like to say many thanks to Sol for letting me use this passage in the show, and if you want to hear his thoughts on how one of the bloodiest clashes of the Pacific War played a crucial part in the US decision to use atomic bombs against Japan, catch up with a History Extra podcast, Okinawa, The Battle and the Bomb. Better still, buy Saul's book, Crucible of Hell. And for one tiny bit more from Saul, stick around for the PS from Hacksaw Ridge. Oof, my word. But even before then, I want to give you a little bit more enjoyment by dipping into another section from this book. The chapter's entitled, I Was Crying As I Did It, and She Was Crying Too. Um, I'm not going to tell you what that was about. You need to read the book to find out. But it's just one of many tragic episodes in the book. Um, But this one is about the action that's taking place. A veteran of eight previous campaigns, the Gunston Hall, or LSD-5 as she was also known, a 7,900-tonne flat-bottomed dock landing ship had left Leyte on 25th March 45 as part of a convoy of ships carrying the 7th and 96th Infantry Divisions towards Okinawa. Also setting off that day were ships carrying the salt groups of the 1st and 6th Marine Division from Uliti the 2nd Marine Division from Saipan and the 27th Infantry Division from Espiritu Santo. Lieutenant General Buckner and his staff were due to leave Leyte on Admiral Turner's faster command ship El Dorado on the 27th. Ahead of everyone, however, was the 77th Infantry Division. 
It had departed Leyte on March 19th and was now nearing its target, the Karama Islands, which needed to be captured before the Okinawa landings. Like most enlisted men in the gigantic armada, Sergeant Dick only learned where he was headed en route. We were told, he recalled, that the island was only about 350 miles from the Japanese mainland and that the fight ahead was going to be a tough one. Born and brought up in El Monte, Southern California, Dick was just 17 when he joined the 40th Infantry Division of the National Guard in 1938. He was then 6 feet 2 inches tall and a skinny 155 pounds, with brown hair combed in no particular direction or style. Posted to Hawaii in 1942, he transferred to the 763rd Tank Battalion after an ankle injury put paid to his career as an infantryman. He was assigned as the driver of Tank No. 60, nicknamed Cutthroats, a 13-tonne Stuart M3 with a 37mm cannon, later upgraded to a much heavier 30-tonne Sherman M4 with a 75mm cannon and 3.30 calibre machine guns. The Sherman also had state-of-the-art radio equipment and an intercom so that the four-man crew could communicate in battle and the commander no longer needed to tap Dick with his foot to get him to change direction. Dick's first and only experience of combat was with Charlie Company of the 763rd, part of the 96th Dead Eyes Division in the Leyte operation in the autumn of 1944. But the rough terrain on Leyte was unsuitable for tanks, and Dick saw little action until one terrifying experience when his tank was part of a platoon of four that was ambushed on a narrow road with ditches on either side by Japanese carrying mines attached to long bamboo poles. Before anyone could react, the lead and rear tanks had their tracks blown off and the two in the middle, including cutthroats, were trapped. Suddenly, recalled Dick, a Japanese officer jumped onto the back of the tank in front and as the turret began to traverse in our direction in order to shoot the Japs off our tank, the officer began hacking away at the machine gun barrel with his two-handed sword. On the fourth blow, the blade snapped and the officer was shot by Dick's gunner. The attack couldn't have lasted more than a few minutes, but it seemed like an eternity. Several Jap soldiers still alive were found in the ditches amongst the dead, and they were quickly dispatched by our crews. At the end of the campaign, Dick was asked by his company commander if he wanted to be considered for a field commission. He agreed and passed the initial assessment, but when told he'd be reassigned to infantry he changed his mind. We all knew that another battle was shaping up, he wrote, and the thought of being in the middle of it on foot really turned me off. I found a niche in the tanks and didn't want to take any chances of missing combat in one of the monsters. Eighteen of Charlie Company's monsters were now in the bowels of Gunston Hall as she headed north from Leyte and acted as a useful ballast when a typhoon hit on day three though the ship still rolled and plunged like never before. A day later, the skies cleared and the worst was over. Next episode, more Lancaster stuff. 
I've got another interview to share with you next time. It's borrowed with permission from the International Bomber Command Centre Digital Archive, based at the University of Lincoln in England. Les Rutherford describes his escape from Dunkirk upon returning to the United Kingdom and joining 50 Squadron in the Royal Air Force. He also describes his training in South Africa and his experience of being shot down, interrogated and imprisoned in Stalag Luft 3. And here's a few brief extracts from the interview. And then, when Dunkirk took place, when they decided to evacuate the army, our division was left behind to fight the rearguard action. You, you passed three courses to be an observer. You passed as a navigator, a bomb aimer and air gunner. You had to pass all three courses. Yes, we, we were shot down over Germany and um, I became prisoner of war. One of the shone a torch over me and then I heard him say, oh, English of Liga. Of course, rifles came off the shoulders and my hands went up and that was it. This was a psychological ploy that the Germans employed because when you've been in solitary confinement for a while, when you come out, you talk your head off. You can look forward to hearing the full interview with Les Rutherford in the next episode. You've been listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 54, Okinawa, Crucible of Hell. Thank you so much for listening. Please do hear me next time. P.S. This is a passage from the Hacksaw Ridge, chapter 24, from the book Crucible of Hell. The radio crackled into life. It was an order to move the tank ahead of the lines, at the base of a fairly high ridge. Their task was to fire into the caves and emplacements on the ridge face. Once in position, Anderson began firing the 75mm cannon, its shells exploding in a sheet of flame and smoke as great chunks of coral and concrete were blasted into the air. Another tank, away to their right, was doing the same. Then suddenly Dick could hear explosions just behind them, almost certainly from Japanese heavy mortars or artillery. Anticipating an order to withdraw, Dick grabbed the shift lever with his right hand and prepared to put the tank into reverse. The tank shook from a direct hit. Badly concussed, Dick did not hear or feel a thing, but he knew something was wrong. Everywhere I looked, it was as if I had red goggles on. Gazing back up into the turret, he could see someone's foot disappearing out of the commander's open hatch. He then looked to his right and saw his assistant driver, Khan, frantically jerking at the hatch lever. We're on fire, yelled Khan, and the hatch is jammed. Dust clouded the air so thickly that it obscured Dick's vision. He realised it had been thrown up by the explosion and was not smoke from a fire. Calm down, he yelled. There's no fire. Khan seemed to heed Dick's words, but then reached up, opened the hatch and was gone. Dick was the last of the crew of five still in the tank. 
he felt strangely calm and noticing the engine was still running, tried to put the tank into gear. But all he could hear was the grinding of metal. The shell must have hit the back deck, he reasoned, and messed up something in the shift mechanism. As he tried again without success, he could hear Anderson yelling at him to get out. He shouted back, I'll be right out. He reached for the Tommy gun that every morning he put in the space behind the dash panel, but it seemed stuck and would not budge. Leaving it, he stood up so that his head was just above the hatch entrance. Suddenly his head jerked back involuntarily, yanked by the intercom cord that he'd forgotten to unplug, just as a bullet struck the edge of the hatch. His error probably saved his life. Having now unplugged the wire, he grabbed the hatch opening with both hands and launched himself out and over the side of the tank, landing in a heap in the dirt before scrambling round to the far side where Anderson and Bormax were crouching by the front left drive socket. The air was full of small arms fire, the dry branch-like snap of bullets making them flinch repeatedly. We'd better get out of here, shouted Dick. Those guys are bound and determined to get us. With that he took off running, zigzagging as he went, before taking cover in a shell hole. Moments later Anderson joined him, as all-round bullets were sending up little geezers of dirt. Dick was pondering his next move when he saw the other tank moving back. He ran over to it and motioned for the crew to drop the escape hatch. While he waited crouching low, he was joined by Anderson and Bormax, who now appeared. To lessen the chances of being shot, Dick slid under the rear of the Sherman and wiggled through the narrow escape hatch. He could see Anderson through the hatch and asked him what was wrong. The lieutenant's been hit, replied Anderson. Bormax had tried to slide under the front of the tank and was shot in the back just two feet short of the hatch. Anderson was trying to manhandle him into the tank, but it was impossible. Meanwhile, the tank commander, Sergeant Boggs, had spotted a Japanese soldier with a satchel charge on the bank above. His gunner tried to shoot the soldier with the .30 calibre coaxially mounted machine gun, but that jammed. So Boggs opened his hatch and let rip with his pistol. When that ran out of ammo, he used his Tommy gun, eventually hitting the enemy soldier. Anderson was still trying to get Bormax in the tank, but at 185 pounds, Bormax was just too heavy. Worried he might lose a second tank, the company commander ordered Boggs to leave Bormax and withdraw. He'd see to it that the infantry recovered the lieutenant's body after dark. By the time they got back, Anderson was a mess. He was sobbing and could not feel his legs, even though there was no sign of a wound. Dick wasn't much better. My nerves were so shot, he recalled. I was shaking all over. He asked the company medic to give him something to calm him and was handed green pills, a super aspirin. It was, he thought, a lousy way to end our first 30 days of fighting. You've been listening to Crucible of Hell by Saul David. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now.